There are a lot of claims made about the technological advancements that occurred in Germany during World War II. Those claims then contribute to the spread of stories about alien involvement, or hidden subterranean societies living under Antarctica, or secret bases on the moon. But are any of those claims justified? To find out, we'll have to look back to the mid-1940s and figure out what exactly was in the skies over Europe, and maybe what was in outer space as well. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Uncover-Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunla, and with me is Nathan Radke. I feel ambivalent. Do you? I do. Really? Yeah. Given today's topic? Yeah. I thought you would be just over the moon, super happy, because, dear listener, we are doing another episode on airplanes. I don't know how I got sucked into this, and I partially blame all the listeners who wrote in saying things like, I didn't think I was into airplanes, but I loved that episode on airplanes. Yeah, one of so our then, most popular episodes ever, which s- drove Lee mad. It did drive me mad. It, it really made me question the whole point of my existence, actually, when I got some of those emails. So Nathan then used that as evidence that we should turn the whole podcast into just the airplane thing. Yeah, I'm not going to go that far. Oh, thank goodness. But we are going to talk a lot about airplanes today, which makes me happy. Yes, it does. And yet you are ambivalent. Yes. And why don't we, first of all, explain what ambivalent means? That is when you feel both good and bad about something. Yeah, you feel like two opposite ways about something. Yeah. Does not mean indifferent. No, it does. It's like the opposite of indifferent. Yeah. It is the two opposite poles at the same time. Yeah. I feel excited because, of course, talking about airplanes, I could do it all day. I, I have. I've, you've seen me do yes, it all yeah, day. Yes, yeah, no, I... <laughs> I have. So on the one hand, we're talking about something I love. On the other hand, we're talking about something that I don't enjoy talking about, which, of course, is Nazis. Oh, no, that's true. Yeah. You can't even make a joke out of that. That's just, yeah, that's like, just uh, how that is. Yeah. Uh, but it's important. Okay. I mean, not only for the obvious reasons that it's important to look at moments in history, but for us specifically, you have noticed and I have noticed when you're researching UFOs, it's odd how often you bump into... References to Nazis. It's really odd. Nazis keep showing up in UFO literature, lore. So where are some of the places that we've encountered references to Nazis when we've been researching UFOs? Well, one of the questions was, did the Nazis develop a UFO? Like this whole stuff around Project Paperclip, where German rocket scientists were taken out of Nazi Germany at the end of the Second World War and put to work in America. The Soviets had their own version of this. And the question was, beyond all the rocketry that they were developing, maybe they had developed a UFO. And we had an episode on this. There was that crash in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. Right. Where some people argued that what had actually crashed was not an alien UFO, but perhaps an American UFO that was built using Nazi technology making the argument that the Nazis had perfected this anti-gravity mechanism okay. and that they were ha- that, that, that they had these UFOs all the way back in World War II. Yeah. When we did the episode on the Hollow Earth, there have been people who for decades have argued that the Nazis escaped to the center of the Earth in a, in a hole that was in Antarctica. Right. And then they discovered all of this like race of super intelligent beings who had flying saucers. They were called the Vril? Yeah, and all of the stuff about the Vril Society, 
we're not going to go into detail into all of those yet. We're going to. Eventually, we're going to talk about the occult uh, origins or influences in the Nazi party. We're going to be looking at some of those ideas in more detail. What I wanted to do today is look and see what actually came out of Germany during World War II, as far as technology goes. Okay. And the story is fascinating. It's horrifying in parts. Right. Uh, as you would expect. But it shows the importance of knowing the historical context of things. Okay. Probably more than any other combatant of World War II, the German government was obsessed with producing war-winning technology that pushed the boundaries of what had been done before. Right. The Americans, of course, had some massive tech projects, the biggest one being... The Manhattan Project and the atomic bomb. Interestingly, not the biggest one. There was a bigger one, a more expensive one. Don't know. The B-29 Project. Right. That's why I don't know, because it's an airplane project. Because it's an airplane. That's why I do know. The B-29 was the aircraft that carried the atomic bomb. Okay. And actually, we saw one of the actual... We right. Saw, I remember walking underneath it. It's yeah, huge. Boxcar. The B-29 project was actually more expensive than the Manhattan Project. Wow. Because it was, it was difficult to build a bomber that big, that would fly that high, that fast, and carry a weapon of that size. So, the, of course, the Americans had a bunch of projects, the British had a bunch of projects, the Japanese, the Russians. But the Germans were really pushing the envelope. And in part, this was because of, of Adolf Hitler, mm-hmm. who was kind of obsessed with... Not just experimental weapons, because every weapon at some point is like a prototype. Right. Every bit of normal battlefield artillery or a bayonet, you've got to build a prototype first. But what Hitler wanted was something that is sometimes called, this is German, Wunderwaffe. 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 Yeah. So translate that for the non-Germans. Wunder is one of those words that could have a lot of different translations. Um, its closest analog in English would be wonder. Oh, that checks out. But I think it would be better to translate the meaning of it as something like miracle weapon uh, or okay. super weapon. So something extraordinary, something yeah. weird and wild yeah. and unusual. And that's what we're discussing today. Only those weapons that would be considered Wunderwaffe. My God, I got the saying that. Yes, you are. But now because you're Should doing I put plural, more V on it? No, you need now the N. Wunderwaffen. Very good. Yeah, Wunderwaffen. So that's what we're going to be talking about. We're talking about some Wunderwaffen and we're going to see... Just how wonder were they? <laughs> okay. And importantly, were they UFOs? And were they UFOs? So we're going to start on the ground. Okay. Before we get to things that could be UFOs, we're going to start with something that could not possibly be a UFO, but it does sort of show a bunch of things. It shows that Hitler was directly impacting the development of certain weapons. Mm-hmm. It shows that Hitler was obsessed with certain ideas, and it shows that those ideas that he had were flawed and terrible. Okay. Let's start with tanks. World War II was the first major conflict in which tanks played a decisive role. Okay. Particularly in the Eastern Front between Germany and the Soviet Union. I mean, World War I, there were a few tank battles, not really that much, and they weren't that effective, and they didn't work that well. But by the time you get to World War II, this is a tank war. Okay. Like, the the speed that you could now travel across country, the, the immense destruction that you could inflict... Tanks were where it was at. And after their first few engagements, German observers were terrified at the appearance of two new Soviet tanks. Because the Germans were pretty sure that they had the finest tanks at that time in 1941. 
And so when they bumped into something called the T-34, Soviet tank, and the KV-1, another Soviet tank, they were in for a rude surprise. Both were far better armored and gunned than anything that the Germans had in like 41, 42, to the point where German anti-tank shells would just bounce off of these things. Uh Uh-oh. You would have one Soviet KV-1 blocking the road, and the the Germans would be firing shell after shell, and they would just be bouncing off. Mm. What the Germans should have done at this point is design a tank similar to the Soviet T-34. Yeah. It was a medium tank. It was maneuverable. It was unbelievably crude. Hilariously crude. I've seen them in real life, and... Like the welding on them is sloppy. They they look like they were they they look like I built them. They are terrible. But the thing about them is I could have built one. Oh. Because they weren't that complicated. Okay. They were simple, they were easy to fix, and they were reasonably reliable. They were terrible to drive. You basically like to shift gears you had to basically like use a hammer. But they did work and they were cheap and you could make a ton of them. And so that's what the Germans should have done is come up with a tank that they could build a lot of, like the, like the Soviet T-34 or the American Sherman, okay. which you're probably more familiar with. I've heard the name. But that's not what they did. Instead, Hitler was obsessed with producing giant, complicated vehicles. Uh, one of the ones that they come up with is the Panzer VI, the famous Tiger tank. Okay. This is, again, like a very famous weapon of World War II. It was, it, it, like, just the name of it would strike fear into the hearts of people because this thing was huge. It had a very powerful cannon. The American tanks couldn't match it. The Soviet tanks couldn't match it. It was a big, nasty, vicious, brutal monster of a tank. All right. But it was a failure, ultimately. Even though it's, it's developed a kind of this legendary status, in practice, it was a failure. How come? When it showed up, it was more powerful than anything the Soviets or the Americans or the British could put in the fight. Like a Sherman or a T-34, that's about 33 tons of tank. It's a lot of tank. A Tiger is 60 tons of tank. Wow, okay. So just... Twice as big, essentially. Yeah, twice as big. Five-inch thick armor, but it was hard to produce. It was expensive to produce. It was very thirsty on fuel at a time when they were running out of fuel. It was too heavy to be maneuverable. Mm. It was too heavy for its own transmission and engine. So often, you wouldn't be able to take this tank out, but the tank would take itself out just by trying to drive up a hill. (laughs) And that's the reason I wanted to start with the Tiger, because, again, we see this sort of almost weird mythology built up about the the Nazi technology. That it was so far advanced right. that anybody, like more than anything anybody else had. Right. But then and when, I guess in some cases that was in fact the case, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were 50 years ahead of everybody else, that it was completely unstoppable. I mean, if their tech was that good, they would have won the Second World War. Yeah, and the Tigers wouldn't have been breaking down all over the place. Yeah. And also, it would have been a far better use of resources to build much more simpler tanks. So already we have an example of Hitler orders like the over-engineering of something. It's too big, it's too heavy, it's too unwieldy. Hitler wasn't that bright, let's face it. And so he's interfering and he's making things worse, as he, as he always tends right. to do. Yeah, no, that's... that's- that's, that's, on, that's, that's his, on brand with Hitler. Yeah, that's, that's, that's Hitler's brand. But that's not the tank I want to talk about. Oh, no, we're talking about more tanks. Yeah. So already we have a tank that's too big. But that's not the only tank that Hitler wanted. Do we get a bigger one? Let me tell you about the P-1000 Landcruiser. Kreutzer. I'm sure it's Kreutzer. Kreutzer. Thank you. 
the P-1000 Landkreitzer. Your normal tank, 33 tons. Mm-hmm. The Tiger, far too big at 60 tons. Yes. The Landkreitzer? I don't know. 1,000 tons. No. Yes. And there's a picture of it up on the wall. Oh, and that's funny that it's a picture of a tank because I assumed that that was... Like a fort? A, a, yes, yeah. like a fortified, wouldn't be a sniper nest, but you know these like kind a, of... Like a pillbox. Yes, exactly, with a big cannon yeah, attached to it. Yeah, because if you look in the corner of that picture... There's a tank. There's a tank. Which is minuscule by comparison, I would say... Like if you were talking about animals, what two animals would you compare those two size-wise? A cat and... Elephant? Elephant. I was wondering about whale. Maybe whale is a bit too big yeah. relative to a house cat, but... It's really another order of magnitude yeah. larger. It's a building. It look yeah, or a toy versus the actual thing. Like yeah. it looks like a large toy next to an actual tank. Yeah, it's like Tom Cruise standing beside Tilda Swinton. Okay, I don't get those references, but I mean Tom Cruise, I know he's short. This thing, 115 feet long, 46 feet wide, armor 14 inches thick. It was a land battleship. Now they didn't build it, but Hitler wanted it. And it had a crew of 40. Wow. That's the crew of this thing. Six cannons. Now, I say it was a land battleship, but it was a land battleship at a time when water battleships were already obsolete. Okay. Because they were too big. They were too easily uh, hit from above by airplanes. The day of the battleship was over. And yet Hitler wanted to build land battleships. And this thing would have had all of the issues in the world. It was too large to be hidden, obviously. Yeah. Like, where are you going to hide that thing? It's, it's like a small town. You could pretend it's a mountain or something. Yeah, you, you could. could. peek on top of it and be like, oh. Yeah, that, that would How probably that work. that mountain is moving? Yeah, that mountain's coming right at us. This, though, is very on brand with German Hitlerian fascism, yep. where a lot of these absolutely ginormous projects, um, his architect in Berlin, whose name escapes me at the moment, was tasked with building government structures that were supposed to, you know, like encompass whole parts of the city. Like they would have been the size of massive you know, football stadiums or, or bigger than that. So this feels like very on brand. Yeah. And also on brand. It didn't work at all. Right. It was way too big to be maneuvered tactically. It was too large and heavy for roads or bridges. Like, imagine that thing going over a bridge. The bridge would be crushed like it was made out of twigs. It was a massive waste of manpower and material. And, of course, would have been the most vulnerable thing on Earth to airplanes. Right. It would have been so easy to hit. So they didn't actually build it, but Hitler wanted it. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be something that comes up again and again, is that Hitler would interfere, he would have some terrible idea, and then people would do it. To their detriment. So now, let's talk about airplanes. Finally. Finally. So by 1943, the main thing that the Luftwaffe, or the German Air Force, uh, the leadership of the Luftwaffe were looking for was a fighter plane for defense over German cities against Allied bomber formations. Okay. Because this was a big part of World War II. At the beginning of the war, of course, we had German bombers who would fly over places like London mm -hmm. and, and do some bombing of London. But by 1943, the Americans during the day would send over hundreds of four-engined heavy bombers and just level entire cities. And then at night, the British would fly over with their Lancasters and their Halifaxes, and they would do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So around the clock, 
There was just horror and death raining down from the skies. The Americans had uh, a new Norden bomb site, which they said was accurate enough to drop a bomb in a pickle barrel. Obviously, that was untrue. And so city block after city block would just be destroyed in an attempt to, to bring the war to a close by basically bombing the industry of Germany into oblivion. I'm guessing also destroying morale. Yeah. Just your cities are being bombed all the time, and that's got to suck. Yeah, and it would suck. Although, I mean, for the British to try this, the British had been bombed at the beginning of the war. Hmm. And rather than the morale collapsing, everybody got all British about it and were like, oh, no, we will fight in the beaches and the the wherever and the stiff upper lip and the keep calm and and all that stuff. keep calm, right, and carry on. That was what that slogan was about, I think. Yeah, although that slogan wasn't actually that popular at the time. Oh. But that that idea certainly was. And so the British leadership thought, well, when we were bombed, our morale was fine, but surely their morale will will collapse. Right. It was an immense use of material. It was an, an immense waste of so many human lives. The bombers would fly over your city. You'd try to shoot them from the ground with big guns, and you'd send up fighter planes to try to shoot down the bombers. Yep. Now, at first, the conventional German fighters, Messerschmitt 109s, Focke-Wulf 190s, I mean, I don't need to tell you, they were doing enough damage to the American and the British bombers that it looked like Allied forces were going to have to reconsider the strategy. Okay. Because it was just, they were losing so many bombers. They were losing so many crews. It was costing a fortune to keep this going, and it was a bit of a catastrophe for everybody. But by 1944, things change. Allied bombers are showing up now in the sky over Germany, and they are not alone. Now there's American fighter planes as well. Mm. So now you send up your fighter planes to shoot down the Allied bombers, and all of a sudden there's Allied fighter planes that you have to fight. Okay. P-51s. And so now we have a situation where American fighter planes are accompanying the American bombers. The American factories are not being bombed, so they can just... They can just pump these things out. They can just pump them out all day long. Yeah. And the Germans are desperate for a new technology that's going to turn the tide in the skies over their country. So don't they start working on a jet plane? Well, that is the technology that they think is going to make all the difference. Because a jet plane is going to be faster. It's going to climb higher. That is going to allow you to get in, to shoot down the bombers, get away before the fighters can get to you. Because you're faster. Yeah. German engineers have been working on jet engines since the 1930s. And in July of 1942, the Messerschmitt 262 flew for the first time. It has those tilty back wings. Swept back wings. Swept back wings. That's the official term. Tilty Um, backy. Those are jet engines under the wings. So it has these kind of barrel-like objects under the wings. A sleek body where it doesn't look too big. It's not stubby. It doesn't have a sheared off nose cone. What kind of animal does it remind you of? So I'm thinking a bird type of animal. Yeah. Hawk. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of looks like a hawk. It looks sleek. It yep. looks fast. It looks modern. But it's not like an eagle. It's not It's not so muscular. No, it, it's not big and beefy. No. It's, it's sleek yep. and like deadly, yep. like a switchblade. This was, as you said, a single seat swept wing jet fighter. Top speed about 540 miles an hour, which is about 100 miles an hour faster than, say, a P-51. Okay. So big difference. Big difference. Huge difference. This is like a, a big leap ahead in technology. Four 30 millimeter cannons in the nose. That's a lot of firepower. Basically one burst. And if it hits you, your plane is going to get just shredded. 
I could climb faster and maintain more speed in a turn than a piston fighter. It was basically uncatchable at speed. And it could be, maybe, this was the best fighter plane of World War II. It was certainly the most advanced. It didn't enter service until July of 1944, two years later. So why the long delay? It was partly because it was a new technology with berthing pains. There was issues with vibration in the engines, for example, because it's a new technology. And there was issues getting a ground crew and pilots accustomed to this new jet engine. But there's another reason why this thing was so slow to become a fighter plane. And again, meddling by Hitler. Oh. Hitler didn't want this thing to be a fighter. Oh. And the reason is he was a fool. Okay. Uh, But the more specific reason is... what was his specific objection? So at the time, the Luftwaffe and the German war effort in general is in desperate need for fighter planes to protect German cities. Right. But Hitler was furious about this, that his air force would be shifting from an offensive force right, okay. to a defensive one. Because he's like, what, are we losing? Right. Yeah, the yeah. answer was... Yes, you're losing. Yes, you're losing. But the idea offended him. It's like, no, like the purpose of my Luftwaffe is to go out and like inflict violence on other places, not to try to protect our own cities. And so he insisted that the Messerschmitt 262, a tiny and lethal interceptor, was used as a bomber instead. Uh. And so all of those things that you just described about how it's like tiny and sleek and fast all made it a pretty lousy bomber. But again, there's Hitler. So they did have a good technology here. This was a legit good plane, maybe the best plane of the war. And Hitler's like, I wanted to be a bomber though. Here we have an example of an advanced technology that the Germans put into service in World War II. But while it was advanced, we don't need aliens or people from the center of the earth to explain it. The British were working on the same jet technology, and actually the first jet fighter entered service slightly before the Messerschmitt 262. The British fighter wasn't as advanced, it had straight wings rather than swept back wings, for example. But while the Messerschmitt 262 was the most advanced fighter of the war, it was still flawed, and the decisions made by Hitler on how to employ it were asinine. It didn't end up playing much of a role in the outcome of the war. And as we'll see, a lot of the Wunderwaffen were much, much worse than the Messerschmitt 262 and far less effective. Before we get to the ridiculous examples, let's look at a fairly decent plane, the AR-234. It's the world's first jet bomber. So uh, describe that one briefly. Well, it's interesting because it, the whole f- like it looks like the cockpit is at the front yep. and it's all glass. And it's a... Uh, Larger plane than the ME-262. It again has the jet engines under the wings, but the wings don't seem to be swept back. No, they're straight wings. And it seems like a kind of a beefy plane. Yeah, because... Because it's a bomber, Because this one is a bomber. So this was the world's first jet bomber. And that's that's kind of an astounding thing. Yeah. It contributes to this mythology that, wow, the, the Germans, the Nazis were so far ahead of anybody else. Nobody had a jet bomber in World War II, but starting in 1944, the Germans were flying around in jet bombers. Mm -hmm. You know what this reminds me of is, I haven't visited Japan myself, but everybody who visits Japan is like, they seem to be like 20 years ahead in technology. Yeah. You know? Like even in things like, oh, I'm going to a vending machine. Right. Like, or or using a toilet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, oh, this vending machine is incredible. This toilet is unbelievable. Yeah. Japan is clearly ahead in a lot of areas of technology. It's not otherworldly tech. The aliens didn't build this vending machine. Right. The toilets are impressive. But they're still toilets. But they're still toilets. And yeah, and the vending machines are still vending machines. I feel like this is sort of 
specifically around war technology, the, the difference, very naively looking at you describing this and listening to you describe this, naively it seems like, yeah, okay, the Germans seem to be like, what, 10 years ahead in, in some of these developments, maybe 15 years ahead. Yeah. But it's not 100 years different. And it's not unexplainable. Right. And actually, that's the precise reason why I included this particular plane in, the AR-234, because it is the world's first jet bomber. But as you pointed out, the wings aren't swept back. They're straight out. Yeah. So it kind of looks like just a conventional propeller plane, only with en jet engines instead of propeller engines. It had a top speed of 460 miles an hour, which is very fast for a bomber, but only slightly faster than the conventional propeller fighter planes that were going to be trying to shoot it down. And... They were also built really, really poorly. They didn't have the manpower. They didn't have the materials at this point of the war. The engines need to be replaced after just 10 hours of flying time. 10 hours? Yeah, so you can so imagine... So you can, like, get there and back, but just... Yeah, and then you got to replace the engines. you got to rebuild or replace the engines. And those engines frequently burned out during flight, which would cause not only the destruction of the plane, of course, but probably the destruction of the pilot who had to squirm his way through a narrow little escape hatch in the bottom of the plane. That feels like not a good place to have the escape hatch because you've got the plane pushing down from above you. If you're crashing, yeah, it's not, it's not ideal. You're at home listening to this asking, why are you talking about airplanes again? This is kind <laughs> of why. Because if you heard, oh, the Germans had the world's first jet bomber, you'd be like, well, that's strange. How did yeah. they get that technology? And then you get into all the conspiracy theories that, you know, they had access to alien technology or they right. were being aided by the aliens or, or what they have were, you. Or they were developing tech so far in advance that it, it resembled alien technology. And that's what the Americans get or maybe the Soviets get it. And they start building UFOs. And yeah. Or it, 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 lead, it lends itself to these theories. It's like, oh, you know. Maybe they were onto something about this was a much more advanced society than any of the other societies at the time. And, yeah. oh, and then that feeds into all of that, that kind of Nazi nonsense. Right, 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 right. But then when you actually examine it more closely, you'd be like, that was impressive. They were able to build a jet bomber, but they couldn't build it well. There were still these problems. It's not that strange. But we're going to get stranger now. Okay. So look over to the Messerschmitt, the ME-163. It's a black and white photograph. Yeah. Now, this is a weird-looking little plane. It has super swept-back wings, no tail, it's tiny. In some ways, it looks more like a spaceship from a 1970s science fiction movie than it does a 1940s World War II aircraft. And what else do you notice in this action photograph? So, it has a huge wake behind it. Yep. It's sort of halfway between a conventional aircraft and a flying wing. It seems... How fast would you say it's going in that picture? Does that picture well, give the idea that this is a fast plane? Yeah, that, that uh, wake behind it is like, you know, when you do a cartoon drawing of somebody running and then you have those lines behind them to really right. emphasize that they're running. So it seems like it's going incredibly fast. This thing is going incredibly fast. 620 miles an hour. We are approaching the speed of sound in this plane. Okay. What this thing is, it's tiny, single seat, rocket plane. Okay. This is not a jet engine. This isn't breathing the air and, and combusting it and then driving it out the back. This is bringing some oxygen with it. This is bringing oxygen in the form of fuel, combining them and exploding the hell out of it. And that's what this thing does. This is a wild thing to have in the 1940s. And operationally, total failure. Oh, yeah? Seven minutes of fuel. That's it. So you're, you're on the ground. You take off. You've got seven minutes to get up there. 
after which you become a glider and you become extremely easy to shoot down. Okay. It was almost impossible to land. It didn't have wheels. You were just kind of supposed to just sort of layer down in the grass there. Uh-huh. The fuel was a terrifying mix of methanol and hydrazine hydrate. And for the oxygen, they, they used hydrogen peroxide. Now, for all of the chemists out there, they've realized that is corrosive. Oh. So you'd put it in the plane, it would start eating away at the plane. If you left it in the plane too long, it would eat through the plane, it would eat through your seat. You'd be wearing like a corrosion-proof suit, but it would eat through the suit and then it would eat through you. So you had to burn that fuel fast. Even seven minutes of fuel, you'd probably be like, that's too much fuel because it's going to eat me. And highly explosive. They would often just blow up when they were being fueled. They would blow up when they were taking off. They would blow up halfway up into the air. They were a complete failure. They shot down maybe less than 10 bombers altogether. And dozens of German pilots were blown up or dissolved in these things. There were no hyper-modern German wonder weapons that could have changed the course of the war. These claims that we see, they were disseminated from the 1950s by the German aerospace industry. Oh. Because they would have had an interest in maintaining that myth. Because think about it, the 1950s, they're desperate to try to sell stuff in the, the new Cold War environment. Yeah. And so one way you could do that is by really pushing this idea. It's like, hey, we've been making crazy stuff since the 40s. Right, right. Well, and again, their tech was relatively advanced. Yeah. It wasn't incredibly advanced. It wasn't unimaginably advanced. It wasn't something that can't be explained. And sure, I mean, Germany certainly was a country with a good education system with people who, you know, engineers, mathematicians, scientists who could export that kind of knowledge. I mean, isn't it, and I haven't looked this up, but the V2 rocket was the first thing that accidentally goes into space. The vengeance weapons. So it makes sense. Yeah. You you kind of... But ultimately, all these things were, were just dangerous for their own pilots. Yeah. And also technical dead ends. As advanced as that, as the Messerschmitt 163 rocket plane was... We didn't make rocket planes after that. The rocket plane was not a technology. We were like, they almost had it. They just needed to tweak it. No, this is a tech that doesn't work. Hmm. Those were all operational. And now let's get even stranger. Now let's get into the experimental planes. So the BA-349, look at that thing. Huh. You're unimpressed. Well, it's, it's not that I'm unimpressed. It's a strange looking object for a plane. Yeah. Looks more like a barrel with stubby little wings. Stubby little wings and a sheared off nose cone. It looks like a piece of a plane as opposed to a plane. Yeah, but that's finished. That's it. That's (laughs) the plane. So this thing was flown once in 1945. To say that it is crude is an understatement. There have been people who have gone over Niagara Falls in more complicated vehicles (laughs) than this thing. And probably more safely. Over 600 miles an hour in something that basically looks like a whiskey barrel that just stuck some wings on. Uh, It's basically a piloted rocket with other rockets in the nose, like little tiny rockets in the nose that would then shoot out of the nose. That's really what it looks like. It looks like a rocket that you stuck a cockpit on. Yeah. And some stubby little wings. And some stubby little wings, and then you put a bunch of rockets in the nose, so you rocket up into the sky, and then you shoot the rockets out at bombers. So it would take off vertically. 
And if you're the pilot of this thing, this is what happens to you. You get strapped in, you're pointed straight up in the air in this ridiculous little barrel. Your rocket engine fires off, and then you immediately pass out. Really? Yeah, because of the unbelievable G-forces that are driving you back into the seat. All of the blood drains out of your head, and you are unconscious. How long? A couple seconds at least. That so now seems you are like an uh, operational flaw. Because if you are unconscious and then you come to, it still takes some time to figure out what the hell is going on. Yeah, and then that's part of, I mean, any pilot training, they have to deal with that kind of G-force-induced unconsciousness. That, that can happen in pretty much any plane. It's going to happen in this all the time. And so you sort of train yourself to come out as quickly as you can and, like, establish what's happening and then go back to work. So it would... You're scoffing. You think this isn't going to work. <laughs> I don't think it's going to work. They I can see why they only flew it once. Yeah, and it didn't go well the one time they flew it. Oh, no. So it would have an autopilot that would kind of direct it towards where the bombers were. So then you wake up. You're in a rocket plane. You're hurtling towards bombers. They're I've shooting at you with machine like guns. This. Yeah, no, it would have been terrifying. And then you would have like a couple seconds to get all your rockets off, try to shoot as many bombers as you could. And then you're out of fuel. Now, with the Messerschmitt 160... Do you get to pass out again now? I would. I would have passed out immediately just when they told me I was going to get in this thing. So the Messerschmitt 163, the idea was you would glide it down to the ground and you would try to land it with no wheels. That's a pretty bad plan. Yes. So you'd think they came up with a better plan or a worse plan with this one? I don't know. At this point, I think probably worse, actually. Yeah, you are correct. This is what you would do. You're out of fuel. You're in your BA-349 barrel. You'd put the plane into a dive. It would start hurtling towards the earth. Then you would pull a cord and a parachute would come out of the tail of the plane. Uh-huh. And so then the plane would immediately go from barreling towards the earth, haha, uh-huh, into slowing because this big parachute would yes. open up. And the fact that the airplane slowed down so quickly meant that you would then get thrown out of the front of it. No. Yes. And then you would pull your parachute and you and the plane would both parachute down to the earth. That is amazing. Yeah. I mean, that is just amazing that that passed any design review board, that anybody said okay to this. But I guess this is late in the war. It's late Everything in the war, is they're falling desperate. Apart. Yeah. They are, they are losing this war. And so the, the pilots that would have been in this thing would have been barely trained. Yeah, because the other ones died trying to land the ME-163. The first time they tested one of these things, the BA-349, uh, they used a crash test dummy instead of a pilot. Okay. And it went perfect. Almost perfect. Right. Except when the plane parachuted to the ground, it also exploded. But almost perfect. Other than it exploding, it was perfect. No, no, I don't think that qualifies as almost perfect. It's almost perfect. When a volunteer pilot tried taking off, the first thing that happened was the canopy flew off during the launch. Huh. The plane then kind of went out of control as it was rocketing up into the sky, and then the plane and the volunteer pilot crashed into the ground. Ugh. What they figured out afterwards was the pilot was either unconscious or dead before the crash, as either he would have yeah, been... Yeah, because the canopy was gone, and you're taking off at a speed that's going to put you unconscious anyway, and now yep. you're doing this without any protection. Exactly. And his neck would probably have snapped from the acceleration. So, that one, not, not brilliant. That's not that wonderful. I bet you we could get worse, though. That's the model of the uncover-up. We can always get worse. Right. So if you look to the one beside that, beside the BA-349, we have the FI-103R. This 
looks like, okay, if I were to say an animal, this looks a little like a grasshopper with wings. It's really little. It's really little. The cockpit is towards the uh, back end of the airplane. It has what looks like, what? Is that a jet engine? It has a pulse jet engine. I'm not going to get into the specifics of that. On top of the cockpit. Yeah, like right over the cockpit. Like right behind your shoulder, there'd be this massive pulse jet engine. That actually looks a little like a Formula One intake. Yeah, it does actually. Intake thing. Yeah. You'll notice it's on a cart. It's kind of like on a wagon. Yep. It's on a wheeled wagon. Now, the reason it's on a wheeled wagon is this plane also doesn't have wheels. What's with them not putting wheels on airplanes? Well, like, I mean, there weren't like wheels what on the ones... all that, these advanced technology you We've think? mastered... The wheels weigh in the rearview mirror. We have mastered wheel technology for thousands of years. Yeah. <laughs> now, the Messerschmitt 163, that first rocket plane we talked about, it didn't have wheels to save weight. Okay. This thing doesn't and have yet, wheels. You, I feel like this is one of those things that's non-negotiable. I'll take the extra weight. Right? I'll be slightly slower slightly if slower I have wheels. Slightly slower if I can land the plane again. Right. That's not going to be a problem with this one, though. That's not going to be a problem with the FI-103R. This one just explodes in the air. Well, not in the air. Oh, it explodes on the ground. This one is not designed to land. And yet it has a a cockpit. It's got a guy in it. I think they're missing the distinction between airplanes and rockets. Yeah, well, at this point, there is no distinction. What this is, is a rocket. I mean, why even put somebody in there? To aim it. But you can aim rockets without people. I mean, this is... Not as accurately as a person. I don't know. I, I feel like I would not be very motivated to aim this at anything if, if, if that's If you're I, in it? Yeah. Yeah, this is... Well, like, at, at this point, I feel like you could just duct tape people to rockets. That's basically what this is. It's, yeah. it's a guided missile, but the guidance system... Is you. Is you. So here's... If you're the pilot of this thing, this is what it would be like. You've got 2,000 pounds of high explosive in the nose, just in front of your feet. Mm-hmm. You would be suspended from the wing of an HE-111 bomber. So you'd get strapped into this rocket, and you'd be put underneath the wing of a bomber, and the bomber would take off and fly towards the target. Yeah. When the bomber was within range of the target, you would get dropped in your missile, and the pulse jet would fire up, and you'd rocket forward. No, I wouldn't. I'd turn around, and I'd I'd aim at that stupid bomber that put me in this position to begin with. What kind of rocket pilot are you? (laughs) And then you would aim this thing and the 2,000 pounds of high explosive that are basically uh, just at your feet there, you would aim it at the target. And then technically, at the last moment, you're supposed to open the canopy and jump out to safety. Technically. 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 Now, I want you to look at the photograph again and tell me and imagine trying to climb out of that thing. It's going hundreds of miles an hour. Oh, you don't even get an ejector seat. No, no you ejector seat. You have to seat. climb out. You have to climb out. That's... And as you pointed out, there's an engine directly behind you. Is it sucking in air or is it pushing? No, it'd be no sucking it, in. So it, you're probably going to like... There would be, yeah, there would be air going into that engine. Like very fast? Yep. I feel like I'd be going into that engine then if I That's tried to get out of it. Pretty likely. Yeah. Yeah. And also the canopy wouldn't quite open because the engine was in the way. Yeah. And then the canopy would get stuck and the, the whole thing would veer out of control and the idea that this was anything other than a suicide weapon is an absurd fantasy. Yeah. But that idea of suicide weapons, it has an air of desperation about it. And so officially, the Germans had no suicide weapons. Right. Because who has suicide weapons? Only a country that would be losing. Yeah. So obviously, there are no suicide weapons. This rocket that you're getting strapped to is not a suicide weapon. You're going to get out of it and 
float gently to earth. Right. Except when you were signing up to fly this thing, you had to sign out a form that said, I hereby voluntarily apply to be enrolled in the suicide group as part of a human glider bomb. I fully understand that employment in this capacity will entail my own death. Okay. That's pretty grim. Now let's talk about some more UFO stuff. Because I want to talk about the HO229. Yeah, now so, describe this thing. So here we're getting into the um, the flying wing stuff. This is a flying wing. And this is like pretty advanced tech. I mean, when we were at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, we saw an American flying wing, which I think... And the now, B-2. And this isn't produced until the 80s, right? Yeah. Look at me. Damn, you're really, you're really getting pretty whip smart on this airplane right? stuff. So... That is like advanced tech. That is super advanced tech. And it looks advanced. Yeah, like it, it, it looks advanced by today's standards. Yeah, it doesn't really look like an airplane in that conventional sense. It looks like a giant boomerang. Yeah, it looks, exactly. It looks like a giant boomerang, like if a boomerang and a bat had a baby. Yes. It would be the HO229. Yeah. So this thing is extraordinary. It was designed by Walter and Reimar. Reimar? Reimar? Yeah. Just angrier? Yeah, no, I think it's perfect. Perfect, Vol- perfect, perfect anger. Yeah. It was, designed, it was designed by Walter and Reimar Horten. My German isn't very good. Two German engineers, and they were also Luftwaffe pilots. Mm-hmm. And it was a radical design. Like, this thing is wild. The reason you have a flying wing like this, low drag, high lift, this thing was jet-powered, top speed is 600 miles an hour. Again, you're looking at 200 miles an hour faster than normal Allied planes. Two 30-millimeter cannon. And a prototype is flown at the beginning of 1945. Oh, they actually built this thing. They actually built this thing, and they flew it. And when you look at a picture of it, the HO229, this flying saucer stuff is starting to make sense. Yeah, I mean, if you think that the Americans produced their B what? B2. B2 in the early 80s, I'm guessing. Mid-80s, yeah. Mid-80s. That is 40 years earlier. Yeah. Like, now we are starting to get into that world where... We are talking about another generation of tech. Like, we're not talking about the next generation. We're talking about stuff that seems quite far away from the mid-40s. And not only that, when we looked at the the rocket planes, that was a dead end. Right. That didn't go anywhere. This is going somewhere. This is going somewhere. This is the future of aviation. And so are they, just as a tangent, part of Paperclip? And is that why the Americans developed their flying wing? Oh, we'll get to that. So, this is what I'm here for. Yeah. I'm getting us to the next You're stage. You're getting us there. There was also problems with this. As amazing as this plane looks, and as futuristic as it was, there were still problems. During the third test flight, an engine caught fire. The test pilot, he may have been rendered unconscious from the smoke, or might have been trying to save the prototype by landing it in one piece, but either way, he didn't bail out of it. Okay. And so was killed when the plane crashed into the ground. Now, this was really close to the end of the war. This was never used operationally. And prototypes in various stages of completion were found by the American army. When the American army comes in and occupies Germany, they look at these things and they're like, what is going on? Yeah. Like, what is this thing? And so, of course, the plans and the planes were brought to America as part of Operation Paperclip. Okay. Now, Walter stayed in Germany and joined the post-war Luftwaffe. Mm-hmm. And Reimar fled to Argentina. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The reason that this plane, even though it was never used operationally, it's really important to us because American intelligence, after Kenneth Arnold first sees flying saucers Mm -hmm. in 1947. Which aren't flying saucers. Yeah. In fact, I have a picture of 
Arnold pointing at what he saw. Yeah. So I'm looking at a picture of Kenneth Arnold. For longtime listeners, they know who Kenneth Arnold is. Uh, for anybody who's listening to us for the first time, he is the guy who starts the flying saucer, the modern flying saucer phenomena, when in 1947, he sees a formation of something while he's in his airplane. What he said he saw looks a lot like a flying wing. Yeah, I mean, it, it, looks, looks, it looks basically, compare what Arnold saw to the HO229. It's very similar there's a Klingon weapon that looks like this, but I neither... Oh, I, boy, did you just nerd out. I know. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it looks very similar. Yeah. In now, fact, like shockingly similar. No, there's a bunch of things that are important about this story. One, this is where the idea of the flying saucer starts. It starts with Kenneth Arnold seeing these weird things in the sky, despite the fact that they weren't... saucers. They weren't saucers. He didn't see something look like a saucer. He, he saw something that looked like if a bat and a boomerang had a baby. Right which was then later misreported or conveniently reported in the kind of journalistic way for a good story, he said they flew like plates skipping across. Like, yeah, like saucers skipping over a lake. And then that was translated by the journalist who reported it as flying saucers, and then which we is had, more pithy. Yeah, oh yeah, than, than flying and bat boomerang baby. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And then we had decades and decades of people seeing saucers. Right. Right. Because of the sticky idea phenomena. I can't stress enough how weird it is that this strange German experimental plane looks almost identical to what Kenneth Arnold sees in the sky. Yeah. I don't think he saw a flying wing, but Nathan is not letting me tell you about it. So we're going to save it for later. We're going to have a whole episode on what you think Kenneth Arnold saw. But, <laughs> but it is suspiciously similar. You know what I don't it, think it was? I don't think it was American tech. Oh, no? And here's why I don't think it was American tech, because the American Air Force freaked out about it. I mean, I guess the timeline doesn't add up, because they would have to bring all this stuff over. In 45. They would have to figure it out, they'd have to build it, and they'd have to be testing it all within two years. Yeah. Which seems, especially given that the war is over, an incredibly fast timeline. Yeah. Now, that's not proof against it. No, but it does but suggest against it. I, I Yeah. But what we know the American military and intelligence agencies were worried about was they also thought, you know, that looks a lot like the Horton Brothers flying wing. Yeah. What if the Soviets grabbed some of that tech? Right. And what if the Soviets had made flying wings? Right. The Soviets, of course, no longer exist. The Russians still exist. And in that entire time period since 1947, neither the Soviets nor the Russians came up with the flying wing. Mm. So if they had a flying wing that was that capable back in 47, I think we would have seen evidence of them having them now. Yeah. The American intelligence agencies and the military thought, for the most part, that those early UFO sightings were possibly Soviet craft, not aliens. Right. I mean, that was one of the big worries, that the alien sightings of the late 40s and early 50s were either Soviet tech or were being... Right. The fear that the entire flying saucer phenomenon was a psychological warfare operation being run out of the Kremlin to get Americans distracted by little green men from space so they wouldn't be paying attention to the little red communists from the Soviet Union. The Cold War was the weirdest, most paranoid time ever. Right. Now, the Horton brothers didn't just design that one amazing flying wing, because another thing that Hitler was consumed by was the destruction of New York City. He wanted New York City in ruins. He wanted New York City in rubble. Hmm. 
but it's so far away. How are you going to get to it? Mm. The Americans could bomb Germany because the Americans could just go over to England and fly right. from there. There was no equivalent of that for the Germans. So how are they going to get to it? The HXV-111. Yes. AKA the America bomber. Okay. This was only in very early planning stages, but what does this thing look like? Well, it looks like a, a sleeker version of the HO-229, which is the, the earlier version of the flying wing. It looks more like a boomerang. It doesn't even have a tail section anymore. This is a bomber that's going to take bombs to New York City okay. and get Hitler's vengeance on the city So is of New it York. supposed to fly across the ocean? Fly all the way across the ocean. I see. And you can do that because the flying wing design is very efficient. Okay. Provides a lot of lift, not a whole lot of drag. Right. So it's, it's a very efficient plane. Now, this was not built. The Americans eventually produced a flying wing bomber called the YB-49 that looked almost exactly like the America bomber that the Horton brothers had started designing in Germany. And again, it's tempting to say that the Americans used stolen... German tech. German tech. Yeah. Particularly since there was an entire program, Project Paperclip, to bring German scientists to America after the war. Even Nazi scientists, unfortunately. But the YB-49 was an evolution of the YB-35, which was an American flying wing bomber that Northrop started designing in the early 1940s, long before they had access to these German scientists. So this is an example of something that, you know how in conspiracies we always hate coincidences? Yes. So I, and some people who are conspiracy theorists will say there are no coincidences. Right. There are coincidences. There are coincidences. And it's also the case in the evolution of science and technology that once the elements of certain ideas emerge, you know, it, it, different people manage to put them together in the same way in different places around the same time. Yeah, parallel evolution. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we see with these flying wing designs. It's also what we see with the jet engine in general. Okay. Because... Inasmuch as the, the Germans were really advanced and had all of these planes out, the British had a jet fighter a couple weeks before the Germans. Really? And the British came up with a jet engine design, again, almost at exactly the same time as German scientists yeah. in the 1930s. This whole time we've been looking, we, we started out with this sort of mythology of the, of, the, of the Nazi tech. Yeah. How it was so far advanced to everything. And, and what we've seen instead was that a lot of it didn't work very well. No. A lot of it was terribly flawed. Yeah. None of it was particularly effective. Hitler was coming in and meddling with it and making it much worse. Yeah. And there were other places who were kind of doing the same thing at the same time. And not to flog the obvious point here, because it really is obvious, but the Nazis didn't win the war. That's, so, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Which, if we were to follow through on the logic of some of the more outlandish conspiracy theories with respect to Nazi tech and UFOs and aliens and stuff like that, well, why aren't they using it? Yeah, if you've got alien tech, you know what you're going to win? A war on Earth in the 1940s. Right, exactly. But I'm not quite done yet. There's okay. one last thing. Is this one of these famous uncover-up twists that we get? I mean, it's not so much a twist, because... <laughs> Surprise! It yeah. was alien tech. It was alien tech. No, it's not going to be one of those. <laughs> so we've gone through, there's so many pictures on the wall, we've gone through almost all of them except for one. We didn't talk about the pumpkin. We didn't talk about the pumpkin. There's a pumpkin up there. There is a pumpkin up there. Right. Like, like a picture of a pumpkin. Not that pumpkin is the name of an airplane. Nope, that's a pumpkin. That's a pumpkin. All right, so now I'm going to go to Time Magazine from July of 1945. Okay. The scene was Allied press headquarters in Paris on a rainy summer day. 
Facing the half-dozen correspondents, Lieutenant Colonel John A. Keck, one-time Pittsburgh engineer and now Chief of Allied Technical Intelligence on German weapons, began quietly. This will make Buck Rogers seem as if he lived in the 1890s. He proceeded to unfold the improbable story of what German scientists were up to when VE Day interrupted them. VE Day, of course, being the, the end of the war in Europe. Right. At a research center in Hillersleben, a group of them were solemnly laying plans for a space station, 5,100 miles up, from which a sun gun would have the whole Earth at its mercy. Assuming that at that height a floating structure would be beyond the pull of the Earth's gravity, they proposed to build a platform for launching rockets into interstellar space and for harnessing the sun's heat by use of a huge reflector, like a burning mirror. They calculated that enough heat could be focused on a chosen area to make an ocean boil or to burn up a city in a flash. Their sun gun could be used, they pointed out, to produce steam and electric power at global receiving stations. Okay. They explained that in the wrong order. Yeah. <laughs> we could burn the sea. Also, we could generate electricity. So this was a space station? Did I hear that correctly? You did. So the Nazis are losing the war. Yeah. And it's at the end of the war because, yeah, these guys as you are working say, on it. VE Day. This is at the end of the war, literally yep. at the end of the war. I mean, there's like the bombing of Dresden. Yep. The Russians are in Berlin. Yep. Like it is over. It is over. And these guys are planning a, what, like a 30-year project to build 50. a 50-year project to build a space station. That could burn a, New York to a crisp. With a gun. I well, mean, with a giant mirror. That's that is optimism, yeah. I have to say. That is that kind of delusional optimism you might expect of the Nazis. In fact, when you were reading this, I was thinking of the bad guy in Austin Powers. That's It's this level of ridiculous. Right? That's what it's, this plan is. I want a million dollars. Yeah. Right. I'm going to build a giant mirror in space that will destroy New York City and Pittsburgh. 50 years from now. 50 years from now. So, yeah, imagine there's a giant mirror, a giant curved mirror. Yeah. So the sun rays hit it, and because it's curved, it then focuses the sun rays into one point. You know what that is? That's the Hubble telescope, just in yeah. reverse. Right. Yeah. Like, it's... Because <laughs> that's what the telescope yeah, does. you're right. Is it just takes in all the light and then focuses it down, and then you get this miraculous image of deep space. Right, but if you did but, that with the sun's rays right. rather than stars... And then, and then, and and then, then aim, aim it at, at Pittsburgh, <laughs> you could just... Just vaporize Pittsburgh. Okay, so this is absurd, and it's also true. It was proposed by Hermann Oberth, who was a Transylvanian rocket scientist, uh -huh. in case you needed it to be even a little bit more cartoonish, and mentor to Werner von Braun. Wow. So this guy was like a legit heavy hitter, because, of course, Werner von Braun... The rocket guy. Yeah, who, who worked on the V2 vengeance weapon for Hitler. And uh, then on the Apollo space program. Yes, yes, he sure did. So... Oberth had started working on the concept of a giant space mirror orbiting the Earth in the 1920s, originally as a way of bringing more sunlight to dark areas of the world. Hmm. Ah, it's nice. But, of course, during the 30s and 40s, plans were begun to turn the giant space mirror into a weapon of mass destruction. Hold on. Dark places of the Earth? Well, like... like aren't it, all places just like... You just have to wait till daytime. Well, we live in Toronto. Yes. Think about Think about the wintertime. Think about how yeah, sad I know, you get. Yeah, but that doesn't work like that because then, then you're going to mess up the whole ecosystem. That's like, the least of the problems with well, this. Okay, <laughs> no, I don't. It's true, but just like, okay. 
<laughs> so this is, this is what Oberth said about his space mirror. My space mirror is like the hand mirrors that schoolboys use to flash circles of sunlight on the ceiling of their classroom. A sudden beam flashed on the teacher's face may bring unpleasant reactions. Mm-hmm. And a giant beam shot at New York would apparently ride to a crisp. Where do the pumpkins come in? Here's the thing. This is not just a giant mirror that you sent up into space. Mm. It's also a space station because you're going to have to attach rockets to this mirror so that you can maneuver it around. Okay. Now, at this time, we don't have the technology to remote control this mirror. You're going to have people in the mirror, in this giant mirror space station. You're going to have to have people up there to fly it around through space. I'm guessing there's like no return. This is one of these suicide missions where they're like, yeah, officially it's not suicide, but you're going to, we're going to duct tape you to the outside of the space mirror for 20 minutes and you're going to... I can't imagine anybody would have survived this project. And it was going to be massive. It was going to be huge. Because if you think about it, in order to be big enough to destroy New York, this thing is going to have to be just immense. So you've got people living in it. But here's the problem. You know what you don't have in space? Air. Air. You don't have air. So how are you going to make air? The answer, pumpkin plants. Huh? You fill the mirror with pumpkin plants. Okay. And then, of course, the pumpkin plants will take in the carbon dioxide that you breathe. Right. And produce oxygen. Okay. Pretty good plan. Pretty good plan. Now you're saying, but wait a second, you're going to be floating around and bumping your head. Right. You won't for two reasons. One... Helmets. Okay. They were going to wear helmets so they wouldn't bump their heads. Two magnets on their shoes. What what can you say? I mean... So if you were wondering, was there a plan to put a giant space mirror orbiting the Earth and then fill it with pumpkin plants and workers with helmets and magnets on their shoes to aim it at New York to incinerate it? The answer is yes. Yes. The answer is yes, there was. Now, would this have come close to working? No. No. For so many reasons. If you do the math, I mean, I'm not going to get into the math, but to have a focal point from that far away that would direct the sunbeam to the point where on Earth it would incinerate things, the mirror would have to be half the size of the Earth, basically. Okay. Otherwise, the focal point's going to be in the wrong spot. So that's a problem. That's just one of the many problems. The pumpkin plants, the pumpkins, they also need water. Yes. And water's heavy. And soil. And soil. And soil is heavy. And sunlight, actually. Well, the sunlight's not a problem. Well, no, but you're capturing it all and incinerating New York with it. That's a good point. You have to have some sun lamps. Right, so and electricity and electricity. There's all these things you don't have up there. Right, that's why this was. Oh, a f- oh, and like half a planet's worth of glass. Yeah, and half a planet's worth of glass. I would think that a giant mirror would probably be pretty fragile. You break a mirror that big, you get seven million years of bad luck. Yeah, feel like we're giving this idea a little too much credit. <laughs> I think we are, but I'm just in case anybody's hearing this and being like, "Oh no, what if they had done this?" They could not possibly have done this. No, but. They wanted to, and they were planning for it, and they were spending money on it. It's extraordinary. So I'll ask you this. All of the theories that we've come across that the the Nazis secretly had all these amazing super weapons, and either maybe they were given to us by aliens, or maybe it was just because it was such an advanced civilization, and 
That's why they were able to come up with this stuff. We come across those theories all the time. Yeah. Almost like a fetishizing yeah. of Nazi scientists. Yeah. What do you think? I think it doesn't really hold water. I mean, I think what you're dealing with is, in terms of what you've described, oh my God, now it's a German word that's in my head, nachvollziehbar. Nachvollziehbar? A very coherent kind of narrative about a country that is gearing up for war with a leader who is interested in advanced technology, but also, you know, meddling and making a mess of things, which led to some projects that were complete boondoggles and other projects that had legs and that were then developed by specifically the Americans and maybe uh, the Soviets as well. And then the rest of it just doesn't really make any sense that they would, if they had all this advanced tech, they would have used it in the war to win the war. They wouldn't, you know. Yeah, what were they holding back for? Right. They didn't show any of it in the war. I mean, if you have advanced tech, the time to use it is in a war. Right. If not, then if not, then, if then, then when? when? Exactly. Right. The theory that they were working on all these super advanced projects and that's what you know, the, the Americans or Soviets later develop as terrestrial versions of UFOs, that they're not actually from outer space, that they are advanced military technology. I don't see any evidence for that. I mean, beyond if we don't think about the flying wing as maybe a stand-in for UFOs. And you can see then that their, their projects, to a large extent, were just nonsensical and born out of a, a desperation that comes with, you're losing this war and things are going to go very badly for you guys. And that's a good historical analysis. What you've just done. Well, that's now, that was what you just did. Well, I, what I, I just, merely summarized. Right. It. Well, it was a great summary. But now I'm gonna now I'm gonna do a now I'm gonna do a bad historical analysis, and you'll see how it catapults into conspiracy theory. Because right. I'm gonna say a bunch of things that are true. Okay. In World War II, the Nazis had rocket planes. Mm -hmm. They had the first jet bomber. Mm -hmm. They were building flying wings. Yep. They had guided missiles. All true. Yeah. They, they were planning a space station to destroy New, New York, York City. And they were going to build massive tanks the size of battleships. Right. All true. All true. But with no analysis. And when you don't put any analysis to it, you're like, wow, that sounds really super advanced. Well, especially if you can then prove that, right? A skeptical audience is like, I'm not sure about that giant tank or I'm not sure about the flying wing. You're like, well, here's a picture there and here are. are the plans. And uh, here are very reputable historians talking about this stuff. And you're like, oh. Yeah. So that is the answer to... Why is it that we have to be like so particular and so careful when we're talking about things like tech? If we do the lazy analysis, it's so easy to go from lazy analysis to wild speculation. Yeah. 